Welcome to Expresso Crime, a podcast all about crimes, short enough to listen to while you enjoy your cup of coffee. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Expresso Crime. If you're new here, thank you for checking us out. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much. So really quick, Expresso Crime have had a few new people asking, what is that about? Okay, so it's a little play on kind of coffee like espresso. Um, So that's where the whole grab your cup of coffee and listen to comes from. You may have seen the troll who was like, you can't tell people what to drink. Anywho, so express quick crimes with a little, you know, play on words because these are short. Anyways, so for this episode, spring break crimes. When we went to Mexico during spring break in 2019, the relief of the hotel receptionist that she conveyed that we weren't spring breakers was kind of funny. But I mean, did we really look that old? Anyways, spring breakers are not. Spring break should be filled with fun and sunshine. A lot of spring break destinations end up seeing thousands of arrests. A lot are not super serious crimes, but as you know with this podcast, let's talk murder. Today's spring break crimes includes a handful that are unsolved and one even dates back to 1940. So first on the list, number one, last spring break in Miami Beach, Avior Collier, 21, and Dorian Taylor, 24, were charged with sexual battery as well as burglary with battery, theft, and credit card fraud. The woman was found dead after officers responded to reports of an unconscious female at a South Beach hotel. The men are accused of stealing the dead woman's credit card to help fund their spring break vacay as well to make matters worse. Number two on the list. On March 28, 2015, the then 20-year-old Alabama A&M student went to her first spring break party in Panama City Beach. While there, David Jamichael Daniels began shooting, hitting her in the head. She survived but suffered a traumatic brain injury as well as other serious injuries. Though she decided to go on and start a foundation which is to provide hope and recovery resources for young adults who are survivors of traumatic brain injuries. So that is kind of a nice, not a nice one, but it's nice when people do um, good things after really bad incidents. Number three on the list, also in 2015 in Texas, a spring break crash that killed a teen and seriously injured another. It resulted in the driver being convicted of a criminally negligent homicide. The experts described the wreck as the worst they have ever seen. The car was determined to be going 115 miles per hour before crashing. Number four, when he disappeared in 2014, Rennie Jose, a senior engineering student at Rice University, was vacationing with friends in Panama City, Florida during spring break. Around 6.30 p.m. on the fourth day of their trip, he left the house that he and about 20 friends had rented. His clothes, cell phone, and wallet were later found in the trash can behind the house. Police speculated that he was tripping on LSD when he waded into the cold water and drowned. Some of his friends reported that drug use was common during the vacation and that he had been making comments about possibly hurting himself. His family denied that he was suicidal. He had been ready to graduate with a 4.0 GPA and was reportedly excited about finding a job. Authorities searched the waters near the beach house, but they couldn't find his body. Several of his friends left the rental house in Florida less than one day after he went missing. None admitted to seeing him leave the house at or participated in the search efforts. No suspects have been named. One year after his disappearance, his family held a vigil to raise awareness 
of his case as they continue to search for him. That is a, that's a very sad case all around. I do think that um, with, with the cell phone being found behind the house in a trash can and none of the friends helping and leaving, that's just a little bit, a few red flags there. Number five, in 2009, Brittany asked her mother for permission to go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for spring break, but her mother only gave her permission to go to Charlotte Beach near her home. Unknown to her mother, the Charlotte Beach trip was a ruse for Brittany to go to Myrtle Beach. Her mother had denied her permission for Myrtle Beach trip because she didn't know the three friends who were going. While in Myrtle Beach, Brittany ran into a 20-year-old club promoter, Peter Brozowitz, an acquaintance from Rochester. The night before Brittany planned to return home, she spent time visiting him at the hotel before returning to her own hotel around 9 p.m. She had been texting her boyfriend during her walk back, but then the text suddenly stopped. Phone calls went straight to voicemail as they called to their friends with whom she had traveled. Between the hours of 9.30 p.m. and midnight, Brittany's cell phone pinged off two towers, the first near Myrtle Beach and the second about an hour south. The area where her phone was finally tracked but never found is with swamps and alligators and some fear that her body may have been dumped there. In one of the most suspicious moves anyone can make, Brozowitz suddenly checked out of his hotel between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and returned to Rochester. The four friends with whom he had shared the room stayed behind. Theories about as to what happened to Brittany, some people included Brittany's mom, speculate that she was a victim of human trafficking. Myrtle Beach has been known as a trafficking hub, and South Carolina has documented a dozen confirmed cases. Some people believe that Brittany's friends may have been involved because there was an argument over a pair of shorts. Brittany disappeared while walking back to her hotel to return to them, return them to one of her friends. The friends who traveled to Myrtle Beach with Brittany didn't contact her family or authorities when she went missing and didn't help in the search for her. Others think Brozowitz is more involved than the evidence has been able to prove. As of now, Brittany has not been found. Number six, Mark Fike, an 18-year-old Canadian tourist, was in Daytona Beach for spring break. On March 15, 1996, he was on a payphone while speaking to his mom, and he was shot and killed. Initially, a special needs teen said he shot and killed him, but police discovered otherwise. The police still believe that the special needs teen was there, but have said that John O'Neill Rainey, who was 17 at the time, actually murdered Mark. The murder came from a botched robbery. Prior to the shooting, Rainey had been in juvie for two weeks on an unrelated charge of violating probation. The state attorney does not believe that the special needs team knew Rainey or knew a robbery or murder was going to happen and that he likely would repeat anything that he was told. The gun was found at Mark's feet and his wallet had just $17 in it. Number seven on the list is March 14th, 1989. Mark Kilroy, who is a student at the University of Texas, was kidnapped in Mexico while vacationing during spring break. He was taken by his abductors to a ranch where he was tortured and sodomized for hours before being murdered in a human sacrifice ritual. Mark was killed with a machete blow and then had his brain removed and boiled in a pot his killers then inserted a wire through his spinal column, amputated his legs at the knees, and buried him in him at the ranch, along with 14 other people who had been killed there before him. The leader of the cult told his followers that human sacrifice granted them immunity from law enforcement for their drug smuggling operations. 
I wonder if this is where Mexico got such a bad rep for vacationing. Probably not, but that is just terrifying. Number eight on the list. In March 1987, 21-year-old Penn State student Dana Bailey was planning her wedding and looking forward to graduating. She had gone to Washington, D.C. to visit her fiancé during spring break, but had come home early after arguing with him. For some reason, Dana told her mother that she'd gotten a flat tire on the way back to Pennsylvania. Then she asked her mother to call in sick for her at the restaurant where she worked at because she wanted to treat herself to a tanning session. That evening, her fiance called from D.C. After a 30-minute chat, she said she was tired and was going to bed. At the time, State College was a safe college town with no more than one or two murders per decade. The street on which Dana lived was quiet because most of the students who lived there were still away for spring break. When her mother, Shirley, stopped by the next day to drop off a check for Dana's rent, Shirley was horrified to find that her daughter had been stabbed to death in the chest. Dana's diamond engagement ring was still on her finger, but her nightgown had been torn off her. Since the area was deserted, there was no witnesses. Investigators refused to release many details of the crime, leading Dana's parents to speculate that there wasn't much evidence to go on. The detail on the tire being flat seemed to be a little odd as the tire seemed fine and the police couldn't find a garage along the route that reported helping her. Of course, though, someone, just a good Samaritan, could have maybe helped. That's just like, not a theory, but just like a weird kind of thing. Uh, nearly 30, later, 30 years later, the case is still open. Number nine, Susan Jacks, a high school senior from Connecticut, went with nine friends to Fort Lauderdale for spring break in 1986. Towards the end of the trip, Susan left her motel room during the night to go for a walk alone on the beach. Later, police believed that she might have been meeting other partygoers at another motel. Susan was found three days later floating in a canal 55 kilometers away. Her body was so badly decomposed that her medical that the medical examiner could not determine the cause of death. Little evidence was found to link her murder to any suspects. No witnesses have come forward and no motive has been found. Robbery was ruled out because she was still wearing expensive jewelry when she was found. There was no evidence of sexual assault. Police investigated several men who unexpectedly checked out of their motels early and left the state, but each was eliminated as a suspect. The police say that their best hope of solving this case is a confession, but none have been forthcoming. Number 10 on the list. On March 29, 1985, Kim Veracco and Lisa Aisman, 20-year-old students from uh, State University College in Buffalo, New York, were headed to Fort Lauderdale for spring break. They intended to meet up with a friend who had already arrived. The two women hadn't told their families that they planned to hitchhike. No! Armed with only a couple of kitchen knives for protection, Kim and Lisa boarded a tractor trailer for a ride. They were known to have made it safely to the southern border of Maryland, where Lisa sent a postcard to her boyfriend. Apparently, their weapons were ineffective. Four days after setting off, both young women were discovered near Tampa River in an undeveloped area. They were both beaten so badly that they had to be identified through dental records. It was determined that Kim and Lisa's body had been in the water for two days. 
They were only in t-shirts. Their cash and other possessions were missing. The truck driver who picked them up was never identified. 30 years later, the murders were made a mystery. Sadly, Kim and Lisa had initially signed up to take a bus trip to Florida sponsored by their university. Although they had been given money for the trip by their families, the young women had apparently changed their minds to save cash for their vacation. Number 11. Another New York student uh, went missing at the same time as Kim and Lisa. Karen Wilson, a student at the University of, of Albany, had been planning to go to Fort Lauderdale with her roommate when she vanished. Unlike the two, uh, she had purchased airline tickets to fly to Florida, but she had never picked them up. Investigators believe that she was grabbed off the street by a lone individual as she walked back to campus after a tanning session. While conducting a mock kidnapping, police discovered that it would take as little as 10 seconds for a man to grab and wrestle a small woman into the trunk of a car. Well, that fun fact is absolutely terrifying. But there's no certainty that that is what happened to Karen. Without evidence, a body, a crime scene, or any witnesses, it has been difficult to make progress in the case. An anonymous caller pointed investigators to a 33-year-old truck driver, but detectives thought it was unlikely that he would have shown up at his 4 a.m. shift if he had kidnapped and murdered a woman at 8 p.m. the previous night. They investigated the driver for two years, but he was never charged. Another tip led police to search a wooden area near an abandoned country club near the driver's home. Months of searching turned up nothing. The driver died years later in a fire and Karen's parents do not consider him a suspect in their daughter's disappearance. Karen Wilson's body was never recovered and the case remains open. Number 12. In 1973, at the University of Iowa, which was pretty much empty with most of the students on spring break vacation, Sarah Ann Otens stayed back at the uh, the dorms to make extra money while working. Just before midnight on March 12th, at the age of 20, she was found suffocated and beaten in her friend's room. She was found by the only other student staying on the floor that week. Police then arrested James Hall, a part-time student who was also 20. He was arrested based on hair, blood, and fingerprint evidence at the scene, and he was convicted to a 50-year sentence. The conviction ended up being overturned on appeal because it was found that the prosecution had withheld evidence. James Hall was then released, and the murder is unsolved. Ten years later, Hall was convicted of strangling a 31-year-old woman. And now for our last case, going back all the way to 1940. 17-year-old freshman Rachel Taylor from New Jersey was returning to campus from a visit home during spring break. She got off the bus from her hometown around 1.20 a.m. to make the half-a-mile walk to her dorm. Ten minutes later, Rachel was seen getting into a car just outside the dorm. A janitor found her beaten body early the next morning about four miles away. She had been sexually assaulted and her body had been mutilated. There was some speculation that a white slavery ring was operated in the area because another young woman had also been tortured and murdered near uh, Pennsylvania. But friends insisted that Rachel had probably known her killer because she wasn't the type of girl to accept rides from strangers. An autopsy revealed that Rachel had eaten just before she died. Since no restaurants in the area were open at the time, this made it more likely that she had known her killer. However, a search of the entire campus turned up nothing. Police interviewed prison inmates, mental hospital patients, and a number of likely suspects around the state. 
A bloody handkerchief and a man's footprint were found near the location where Rachel's body was discovered, but her killer was never identified. Neither the car nor the murder weapon was ever located. Rachel's murder has become one of the oldest unsolved cases in the area. That wraps up today's um, Espresso Crime episode for Spring Break Crimes. I thought some of those were fairly interesting um, so yeah, just keep those in mind if you're going on spring break and don't accept rides from strangers and don't hitchhike and don't go out alone and just be very, very safe. Okay. Happy spring break. Happy whatever day you're listening to this. See you Sunday for a new episode.